and I talk about the times when I've been mistaken for being the paralegal, the secretary. I was speaking at a conference once, giving the keynote, and I was rushing to get there on time. And someone stopped me and asked me where the toilets were, and assumed I was an event organizer. I mean, he wasn't asking, you know, the way sort of he was very rude and abrasive and everything else. And I said, I'm actually rushing to the main stage to give a keynote. I've got no idea where the toilets are. And I thought, my goodness, he assumed that was part of the organization team. Welcome to the Leaders with Babies podcast. My name is Verena Hefti. I am the CEO and founder of the Social Enterprise Leaders Plus. With this podcast and our award-winning Leaders Plus Fellowship Program, I want to give you access to inspiration and practical support so you can continue to progress your career whilst enjoying your young children. If you want to get involved, be that as a senior leader mentor or a fellow, then register interest here on leadersplus.org.uk forward slash register interest. I'm really thrilled to be speaking to Dr. Funke of Bimbola MBE today. She is a real inspiration to me personally. She's been one of the first speakers when I set up Leaders Plus initially. I remember very vividly when she came along to speak at an event in the House of Commons in front of 40 babies and 60 leaders to share her experience of being a mum whilst at the same time being a general counsel, the most senior lawyer in a law firm and then a C-suite executive. She is absolutely fantastic and a real inspiration. She also runs the Austin Bronte Consultancy, providing a range of C-suite, board and other advisory services to corporates and firms. She's very down to earth and we pretty much put the world to rights in our chat. She shares about how she's become a inspirational public speaker from someone who actually didn't particularly enjoy public speaking at first. She is very honest about race and her experience of being at the receiving end of unconscious bias and how she challenges this without just, you know, losing too much energy um, in in the conversation about making sure that you, you know, you're not seen as the paralegal or the secretary all the time. And um, yeah, I've definitely learned a lot from her in the conversation and I hope you find it interesting too. A very warm welcome, Funke, to the podcast. Thank you for taking time out of your very busy schedule, both as a parent and as a leader. Thank you. So why don't we start with you telling us who you are, who is in your family, and a bit about your career background and what you do now. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Verena. This is a a wonderful opportunity to to share my story. So I'm Funke Abimbola, mother to an amazing 17-year-old young man, I should say. I can't really call him a boy. He's almost 18. He's turning 18 just over a week's time. Significant age, as as we know. So I'm very, very proud of him. He's in his final year of school. So that's the stage he's at currently. I share care of him with my amazing ex-husband, who's very hands-on and incredibly supportive. And we co-parent very, very well. We're very consistent with that. My first career, in terms of my career, was in law. So I've worked as a corporate lawyer, for four different law firms, two of which were in central London and two were outside central London. 
And then from there, I moved into the pharmaceutical industry. So almost 10 years ago now, I can't believe it. I moved into the global pharmaceutical industry. I worked for Roche, uh, which is the world's largest biotech company. And I've also worked for a second global pharmaceutical company since then. What I'm doing currently is I'm finishing some postgraduate uh, business studies with Wharton Business School, which all coincided with lockdown happening. I'd already signed up to doing the studying before I knew that lockdown would be happening. So I was going to be at home and, you know, working online anyway. So it was quite fortuitous timing. Got one more module to finish. Alongside this, I'm running my own consultancy. Initially, it was to help me with the learning. With Wharton, I was finding some of the modules quite challenging. So I learned by doing. And that's grown and grown. And I do uh, speaking engagements advising the C-suites. I've been advising a lot of CEOs around business recovery. More recently, I offer a diversity training. So I do a lot of um, race awareness training and allyship training, very, very much needed at the moment. And I still do uh, legal advisory work also within the pharmaceutical industry. So very, very busy time and with the studying and supporting my son through year 13. But, you know, counting my blessings, really, it could be so much worse, couldn't it? Mm, yeah and we were just saying before we came on you have a lot of family members in the medical profession as well which obviously is something that I'm sure focuses the mind in in so many ways it does yeah so you and I we met each other when I was looking for brave people to speak in front of a room of 40 babies and 60 adults in the house of commons and you said yes you're up for it and you survived and did very (laughs) beautifully you were incredibly inspiring but It was really interesting. I came across your work online because you were just pushing so hard for increased diversity at race, but I know that gender is something you're passionate about as well. Where did that start? How did you become passionate about it? So it started with the challenges I personally was facing, which were really unexpected. I've been a qualified solicitor for 20 years now, but I was really surprised by how hard it was for me to enter the profession. And I say this because I come from a, a very privileged background. I was privately educated. I'd been to top university. I had the grades. And I honestly had not realized that there'd be any barriers. Very naive of me. But I, I could not get my foot in the door. I, I ended up having to make over 150 phone calls to get my, my first role. And it was in circumstances where... It became very apparent that my name was was a real issue. It was obvious that I was African. And at that time, law firms were, there there was very strong bias. I compared myself to my my peers who were West Indian. So they would actually be black like me, but they had anglicized names. So they'd get their foot in the door, at least would get past the CV sifting. And I was getting nowhere. I mean, some of them didn't even have grades uh, as good as mine. And it was a real... Rude awakening, Verena. I was really genuinely shocked by that and really cross that I had to do that, that I had to make all those phone calls. The other thing that was really galling was I wanted to become a corporate lawyer. That's all I wanted to do. I live and breathe advising corporates and working within a corporate environment. And I had a recruiter say to me 20 years ago that I should forget about corporate law because I was a black woman and that I should think about other areas that would be easier to get into and I was I was horrified by that so it was the first time I was aware that being a woman and being black was in any way going to be a barrier so I got through that hurdle was married at the time had my son 
we planned him, you know, it was no surprise. That we were, uh, I was in my late 20s. I thought it was a good time to have a baby. The legal profession, unfortunately, had other, other thoughts. And returning to work after maternity leave was the most, one of the most traumatic experiences I've ever had. Uh, the firm wasn't set up, really. I had to leave central London altogether to work in a regional firm to, to accommodate, you know, the demands. So I realised that both race and gender are composed very real barriers. And the work has just developed from there. I was very, very angry for the first few years of my son's life. And I remember just constantly venting to whoever would, would listen about how unfair it all was. And I suddenly realized one day that actually I should do something about it instead of complaining. And it was really when I joined Roche, I started doing work behind the scenes before I joined Roche because I wasn't terribly comfortable about being visible, frankly. I really didn't want everyone knowing my personal story. But once I joined Roche, the role I, I was recruited for was so prominent and groundbreaking, really, within legal circles that a black woman was appointed, that I was thrust into the limelight. And I, I, re I didn't have much choice but to embrace that and use that as a platform. And that's when I became a lot more visible. So people will notice if they do a Google search, there's not much about me on Google until about late 2011, early 2012. And that's when all the articles and podcasts and activities started. But it was born from personal experience, listening to other people's stories as well. I became very aware of the challenges if you were LGBTQI, if you had an accent, you know, my friend is a white guy from Essex and, you know, he had barriers entering the profession. If you were disabled, the guys were struggling with gender balance, you know, lots of young dads wanting to be more hands-on and felt that they were imprisoned by some of the stereotypes about them becoming partners. So it was all embracing multiple diversity strands, but starting with personal experience. Now you just said that, it sounds like you became the black lawyer, in quotation marks, And at the same time, you were the general counsel, I think, at Roche. Like basically, you were the, the most senior person. It would, the buck would stop with you if something went wrong legally. And let's face it, a pharmaceutical company will, there's a lot of things that can grow, go wrong. And yet, it sounds like you were the black lawyer. How did you square that? Even as I say it, I feel slightly uncomfortable about mm. you just being that role. I mean, I, I would... I would like to think that I was seen as much more than that, Rosh. In fact, I know I was because I, I got involved in a lot of other things beyond the legal, purely legal advisory side. And there were a lot of business roles that I took on, commercial roles as well. But obviously, I am visibly black. I mean, <laughs> the fact that I'm a visible minority is something that everyone will notice. And that makes you more conspicuous in all settings, And everything you do is noticed. Everything you say is scrutinized. There's a lot of data that shows that you're far more likely to have negative judgments drawn about you if you're black. And I've certainly experienced some of that throughout my career. And that aspect of it is incredibly challenging, Verena. I mean, I was listening to a podcast by David Olushoga, and he was saying that that has real mental health implications. So it's tough. That aspect of it has been very difficult. Mm -hmm. I can imagine. I interviewed Poppy Jarman a while ago for this podcast, who's obviously a big mental health campaigner. And she says that 
people from ethnic minorities do suffer a lot more from certain mental health conditions, not because they are predisposed to it, but because it's just really tough when you get that those microaggressions and those mini judgments all the time. Interesting. So how do you practically manage your brand knowing that anything wrong, in quotation marks, that you do wrong, people will remember more than if a white man would do it? That has been a journey, Verena, if I'm honest. And it really, enough things that happen now that I'm so visible that remind me of why I didn't want to be visible in the first place. But I, I've had so much more impact as someone who's more visible. I can't, you know, I can't go back now almost. But you rely on the council of close friends to, as a filter to help you. You know, in fact, I was talking to someone just this morning about something else I'm thinking of doing and a friend that I trust to, you know, run things by my son's an incredible support and he's been dragged around to all sorts of events from a young age with me and he understands you know he understands he does lots of public speaking himself family help with some of the challenges around that Uh, my network generally my trusted network that's how I I cope with with that aspect of it certainly Mm -hmm. yeah that tallies with some research I read recently that for women and possibly also for I think minorities having a really small group of people who you trust in your network is more important than for for men. So interesting. So you come across extremely confident whenever I meet you, whenever I talk to you, whenever I hear you speak. So one, are you confident? And if yes, what was a trigger moment for you becoming that person? I am confident. I, I am. It comes from my background. And my, my parents were amazing, are amazing. My mother is still, still very much alive. My, my father sadly passed away. But they instilled that confidence in myself and my siblings. The family I'm from is, is, has a lot of heritage and gravitas in Nigeria. And as a family, we've achieved a lot. And we're very, very driven and high achieving and supportive with it, you know, so it's not just about achieving the academics, whatever it might be. There's a lot of love and support there. And that is where my confidence comes from. It's, it's knowing who I am, being proud to embrace both my Nigerian heritage and my British heritage. And I've instilled that in my son who, whilst I was born in Nigeria, he was born here, which presents a slightly different slant. You know, he wasn't brought up in Nigeria. I spent the first eight years of my life in Nigeria. But his confidence is firmly rooted in his identity also. And and my ex-husband and I make a point of, from a young age, you know, he's been back to Nigeria several times. He's very proud of his Nigerian heritage. And that really has helped him to become the confident, self-assured young man that he is today. Mm, Fantastic. And you mentioned about your name. Did you ever feel tempted to hide part of your identity for example to take on Catherine as a middle name and just use that in your CV uh, or or hide another part of your identity yeah on the main side I, I wasn't tempted which is all the more surprising given the fact that I had the challenges that you know with my name early on the part of my identity that I felt a bit more reticent about revealing in some settings was being a mother, actually, when I was more junior and being interviewed, I was very careful not to mention the fact that I was a mum at that point because it, it was proven that you wouldn't get the job. If they found out you had a child, you know, you just wouldn't get the job. 
And that had happened to so many people I knew at that stage in their careers. So I would just never mention my son, which is awful, but that happens. When I became more senior, though, and once I was thrust into the limelight, you know, I was very proud of embracing that. And in fact, I talk about him all the time, even if the interview is not about being a parent. Or, you know. But yes, when you know there's going to be a penalty attached to mentioning aspects of your identity, you do need to be very careful then. And I know that it would have cost me jobs if I had been a lot more open about the fact that I had care responsibility for my son. Mm-hmm. And yet, as a campaigner now, you're you're more than open, and you're really inspiring people yes. to to follow in Thank your you. in your shoes. So, in my view, there are probably a lot of blind spots that white people have, and that I have, about the things that we don't know. But what are the things that you would love people like me to know and just do in their everyday lives? The first and most obvious thing when you are a visible minority, and it's something that I I try to explain to my my white friends and and colleagues, is that the fact you stand out so much and all the negative judgments that are drawn is something that they will never have to deal with. I mean, you know, I've said this to friends of mine who I know are from working class backgrounds and white, for example, who face their own barriers that I completely, Mm. you know, try to empathise but the immediacy of that judgment is what I, what I mean here. And that's hard to deal with. So I explain that. And I talk about the times when I've been mistaken for being the paralegal, the secretary. I was speaking at a conference once giving the keynote and I was rushing to get there on time. And someone stopped me and asked me where the toilets were and assumed I was an event organizer. I mean, he wasn't asking, you know, the way someone, he was very rude and abrasive and everything else. And I said, I'm actually rushing to the main stage to give a keynote. I've got no idea where the toilets are. And I thought, my goodness, he assumed that I was part of the organization team. So it's that sense of always being diminished somehow because of the color of your skin. You know, you're assumed to be so much less than what what you are. I mean, ironically, one of the things that's funny and challenging at the same time is I don't look my age. You know, a lot of people are very surprised when they, I tell them how old I am. And I say, I've got a son who's almost 18. You know, they, they can't, ima- they imagine I must've had him as a teenager, which is very flattering and it's wonderful on the one hand, but even that's a bit of a stereotype that because I'm a single parent, I must've had him when I was younger. And, you know, and I say that actually I have a very supportive ex-husband. And so that then throws people. And all of these things come down to dissonance, you know, cognitive dissonance, uh, Verena. My mom's a psychiatrist and talks about this all the time, where if it's not within someone's lived experience, they can't appreciate that a black woman could be from a high-achieving Nigerian family, privately educated and so on. For a lot of people I've met who are white, they've not had that experience. I've had many people tell me that I'm the first person like me that they've ever worked with. So that is, is tough. And the other thing I try to get across is the history behind racism and, you know, the the atrocities of the transatlantic slave trade and then colonialism and how before then racism, as we now experience it, did not exist. And what's happened since then is the media has then carried on just portraying that same negative image of those who are non-white. And we have a very destructive media, unfortunately, because the selling stories, you know, they have to be sensationalized. And that's what I try to explain. And the visibility of minority ethnic role models is critical. And that's the other thing that 
a lot of my friends who are white don't understand why my push, I'm constantly, and you'll see this, Verena, and anyone who connects with me on LinkedIn, I'm forever profiling people, generally, not always minority ethnic. I've profiled you, I think, in, in the past. Thank in you fact. very much. <laughs> <laughs> but role modeling is very important, but the visibility has to be there. And it really impacts minority ethnic communities and young boys in particular who are black, who don't see role models apart from entertainers and, and sportsmen. They think that's all they can do then. Mm. When actually there are far more black lawyers, architects, engineers in this country than there are sportsmen. Mm. So I'm passionate about that. I'm really, you know, it's so important we have those role models that are visible. So if someone hears this, is white, and thinks, okay, this sounds incredibly important, but they might not have any black friends at work because they're unfortunately not not that many black people in senior positions. And also they're just worried about talking about race in the first place. What concrete thing would you like them to do, if anything? Yes. This, like next week or this week? That's, you know, education resources that weren't there before. I, I mentioned David Olushoga uh, earlier, the historian. He's written now two books about black history, and they are incredible. One's for children and the other is for adults. And that really, I mean, if, if there's one book you read, that one will get you there in terms of the history. Rennie Edo Lodge has uh, written a book called Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race. Again, slightly different style. I don't believe she's a historian, so it doesn't have that same emphasis. But again, it goes into a lot more of the personal stories. And there's several books about how to talk to children about race, more than I could mention on this on this podcast, uh, and many other resources around the historical aspects, allyship, and so on. The other thing I would highly recommend is doing some form of allyship training, because it's one thing to understand the history it's quite another to come up with the tools and to know what action can I take after this level of understanding that I now have. I mean, I provide allyship training as part of my, my offering, and it's been very, very helpful for my corporate clients, you know, law firm clients have also had it as well. So it's a combination of both. It's self-education, and then it's some form of allyship training. But I've seen incredible change happen with those two things. Engagement scores have gone up, certainly with one of my clients, Overnight, across the whole group, and it's a global company, their engagement went through the roof after doing, you know, the allyship training I provided, preceded by a keynote, you know, about myself and my journey and so on. So it works. It really, really Mm. works. Fantastic. So if there was one thing in the allyship training that people should be doing, what, what, uh, I mean, we should probably say an ally, uh, what it is. I presume that is someone who basically has your back when you're yes, out of, of the room. Exactly. Someone who ad- advocates for you, stands up for you, which is a lot easier to do when you understand or empathize with the struggle that, that the person who's underrepresented is facing. The one thing is to take some form of action. I, I encourage an action plan as part of the training. And I encourage buddying up with a, a colleague uh, in a different part of the organization who's nothing like you and committing for the next 12 months to this is what I'm going to do. I have a template plan and it's all very, you know, very exciting and people love it. And they commit to to meeting up, you know, at the moment online, everyone's able to do a Zoom, et cetera. And that has worked because for each person, there's a different thing they can do. You know, it could be asking about someone's background, for example, having read the books, you know, 
Would you mind sharing a bit more about what it was like coming to the UK when you were eight? Or it could be something more tangible around starting an entry-level scheme that's more focused on underrepresented groups, which I've had from, from one, one outcome was someone suddenly decided, very junior, that that's what they were going to do and is now doing it. <laughs> so those are the sorts of things. I mean, I could say a lot more about what, what could be done, but I like to instill passion and genuine motivation before we get to the stage of this is what you can be doing because that's what's going to sustain the change. And I'm only interested in driving sustainable change. Absolutely. You mentioned those moments of microaggression. So someone mistaking you for the paralegal when you're actually the keynote speaker and so on. And I'm sure many people listening to this will also experience that, be that because they have a disability, be that because they're the only young woman with children in a senior leadership team. What practical things can do you do to deal with those things what could someone do who hears this who is really fed up by always being mistaken for the lady who serves the tea at the board meeting so it's funny i actually spoke about this well it's not funny really but uh, i spoke about this at a conference recently that that was the actual topic of what i spoke about and how to cope with it and i had this sort of three-pronged line of attack if you like or action plan the first thing is to actually process the way you feel in a healthy way because it's so demeaning and dispiriting and, you know, time after time you're getting these mosquito bites is what I call them, which on their own would be fine. But, you know, when you have too many, so processing and not lashing out in the moment in the professional setting is very important. It can be very difficult not to do that. It can be very difficult not to be reactive and feel insulted, but that's essential. So talking to friends, family who understand and so on, that's the first step. Second step is what am I going to do about this? Who am I going to talk to in the organization? Because if you think this is going to carry on, it's going to carry on affecting you, think very carefully about who you might need to talk to. It could be your boss. It could be another colleague. It could be HR. It could be the CEO. You know, depending on your setup, having a conversation with somebody who you think will understand, prepared to do something about it is really, really important. And the third step is the actual action plan. And I'll give you an example because, you know, I need to give practical examples of how this has played out. I had someone who I worked with, and I wouldn't say where or, or who it was, but he was white and male, constantly telling me, you're so articulate, but sounding surprised by it. It wasn't said in a complimentary way. And this is something that data shows a lot of minority, I think, people get the way you, you speak. And if you're well-spoken, people remark on it. And he wasn't saying this about anyone else in the leadership team. So I called him up on it. And he also was claiming that I was overrepresenting myself, that I was overpromoting. So I called him up on that and I said, why do you, I asked him two questions. I said, why are you so surprised I'm so articulate? Because I've noticed that you only say that about me, but I work with a whole load of leaders who are incredibly articulate. So do you think it's because you're surprised? You know, and he hadn't realized that he was even doing it. The overpromoting claim, again, didn't stack up in all sorts of ways. It, it just didn't. Again, it was purely because I was more visible in any setting. And therefore, this individual is noticing me more. But, you know, to be told you're overpromoting when you know you don't do that uh, is incredibly demoralizing. And to be hearing that constantly and have that individual telling others that you're overpromoting was absolutely horrible. The first few times when he said these things, I was so shocked that I, I couldn't, you know, I had to process. I mean, I had to go through my step one where 
if I'd reacted in the moment, it would have been so counterproductive. I was just very quiet, thanked the person for the feedback and so on. But I went back to reflect and I was, I was raging, Verena. Discussed it with a few friends and realized what was happening. Once I calmed down, I then had the conversation. And what was incredible was the action plan that came out of that was this person became an incredible ally, almost to the point where I had to ask him to tone it down, you know, because he was so horrified that his unconscious bias, because he wouldn't have been doing it deliberately, had had that effect on me, he hadn't realized he was doing it. And it was then incredibly supportive of all my initiatives and, you know, became a, a massive ally. So it can become an opportunity. But sometimes it can lead, you know, with one of my mentees, they ultimately had to leave the, the organization because things couldn't improve and it was just taking too much of a toll. Thankfully for me, mm. that wasn't the case and I was able to turn it around into an opportunity. Mm. Interesting. I have so many questions about this. So why did you, I know a lot of people listening to this would assume that they are in fact over-promoting you clearly didn't go down that route. What gave you the confidence to say, yes, this is, this is a systemic race issue. I need to talk to him. So for six weeks, I did think it was true. I, I did think that I was over-promoting and I was really upset and was asking friends that I trusted, you know, who can be critical friends, was I over-promoting? And all of them said, absolutely not. So, but that was a six-week process, Verena. So initially when I heard this, I took it on as, yes, I must be over-promoting. And it took actually me giving a talk. I gave a talk to some students at a university in London in the middle of this six-week period. And I mentioned this scenario. And one of the students after the talk came up to me, and he said, so what happened next? You know, he said, because the scenario had stopped at, he told you you were over-promoting. I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, aren't you going to do anything? Because I've been all about, you know, we must take action and this is what I'm doing and he said well don't you think miss that you should <laughs> actually talk to this person and tell them and honestly Marina it's it had never crossed my I hadn't even thought I was just so upset I couldn't get beyond it and I said gosh actually you've got a point I, I'm calmer now I should talk to him it was a six-week period though that I was very upset so I did I was led to believe that I was over promoting and it was absolutely horrible. I mean, who wants to be told that, right? You know, it's, uh, especially when you don't feel genuinely that that's what you're doing. But had it not been for the student, I would question whether or not I've had a conversation with, with this guy. And thank goodness I did, because a lot of good things came out of it. Brilliant. I love the power of young people. And did you actually mention the word race and say that this is a this this is likely to be a systemic issue because I know many people will be very scared to mention, I think you're discriminating me on the basis of race or sex. I didn't use the word discriminating because that can be inflammatory in that kind of setting. And I didn't say systemic racism either, because again, when you're trying to get, when you're trying to build understanding with someone that you work closely with, you know, that kind of language doesn't really help at that point in time. What I said was, I, I really believe this is a case of unconscious bias. I, I think the, the fact that I'm so visible as a black woman is the reason why you noticed me more in that team photo, for example. I mean, just to give you the context, one of the things he'd said was that in the team photo of six, I was in the middle and I could not mathematically, I cannot be. And I 
looked at the picture and I said, but I can't be in the, you know, there's two of us equally in the middle. If you want to say, but you've noticed me because I'm the only black woman in this picture. That's why you've zeroed, I'm not in the middle. So the other person who's white should also be having this conversation with you, actually, if you're saying, so, I mean, it was, it was very clear that it was my visit, but I was very careful how I expressed myself around it because I knew it was unconscious bias. I knew it wasn't deliberate and I was very keen to build bridges. Interesting. And you've obviously done it really well because he's become an ally of yours. Yeah. Amazing. Absolutely incredible. Mm, Fascinating. I mean, the evidence is so clear that for women, and I presume ethnic minorities as well, I'm, I'm not as clued up on that, you know, self-promotion is absolutely essential. Never mind the question about whether you're doing too much or not. You have to do more of it than a man because like from what you said from the conscious bias, people tend to forget your achievements more. They're more likely to think that you are the event organizer. And so for you to be doing just the basics of that self-promotion, or, I mean, don't even know if you did it at all, but then getting that feedback is very interesting. But how inspiring how you dealt with it. Thank you for sharing that. I just want to ask something about the intersectionality as well, which is a word that has been thrown out a lot. And I think, you can correct me, I think it means that basically if you have two or three factors that make you less statistically likely to either succeed at school or progress in your career, they compound. So the bottom line is if you're a parent and you're black and you're a woman, you're, that makes a bigger impact. Well, first of all, does that is that definition proper? And secondly, did that happen to you at all in, in any case? So yes, that is the right definition. It's when multiple aspects of your identity can be limiting factors for you progressing. Uh, and can be, you can be discriminated against. That's absolutely right. And yes, for me, certainly. I mean, the fact that I was obviously African, um, black from my name was a challenge at entry level. The fact that I was a woman became a real issue after I had a baby, you know, because I had the four years maternity leave at the time. Being a woman actually increasingly can be a challenge, even as a senior leader. You know, being a black, senior black woman terrifies some people. I mean, just me existing and not even opening my mouth seems to be a source of fear for some who just can't get their heads around that. That has been a challenge and continues to be. You know, I'd be lying if I said otherwise. But again, one needs to embrace all aspects of identity and not feel ashamed of it. And I'm not in any way ashamed of any aspect of my identity. I'm very proud to be a mother, you know, and I'll talk about my son till the cows come home. But it is, it is hard. You know, it's real. You know, the struggle is real around all these barriers. Absolutely. I feel really passionately that we need to be hearing more from people like you and be that women, mothers, people from ethnic minorities, um, black people specifically. But I think sometimes, I mean, one very simple way to hear from you is by you being a speaker, which you are most brilliant and inspirational speaker i could listen to you for hours but how does one become a brilliant speaker have you always been a brilliant speaker please tell me no because i would like there to be some hope for <laughs> for others no, but in, anyways what 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 say yeah how how did you become so brilliant at it <laughs> so, what can others do to follow yeah that, that's a very i've, no, I've not always been a, a confident public speaker at all in fact when i was at school and I went to a private girls' school, amazing private girls' school in the south of the country. 
at public speaking was a massive thing that they pushed us all to do. And there's such vision. They were doing this years ago because they realized that that built confidence in other ways. I was terrified. I mean, I, I still remember the first time I had to do it, but I'm so grateful that they did. And, you know, it went as far as having elocution lessons, uh, which I really resented having to have because it meant doing it in break time. And, you know, that has really, really set me up. I grew in confidence from that. And I actually do provide coaching for public speaking because I get a lot of people asking me, you know, what can I do and how can I improve it? So I haven't always been a confident public speaker at all. But the more of it you do, the better you become and become second nature. You can deal with unexpected things as well, you know, tech issues and mics not working. And I've had all sorts of things happen over the years. But I really, really enjoy public speaking and have done for several years. And I love the way that I can engage people and, and reach that sort of the heart and mind connection that is required to drive change. I really get a lot of energy out of doing it. But that's a brilliant question because the answer is no, I haven't always been a confident public speaker mm. at all. I think the interesting thing about you is that you speak with purpose. And I wonder if you had learned to speak about agribusiness, whether you would be asked, you, whether you would have developed an as proficient speaker. And I think there's really something about being so passionate like you are and then using this as a a place to become an excellent public speaker? I think an interest and a genuine interest in the subject is, is essential. I mean, if you're, if you're being forced, even as a lecturer, to lecture on something you're not interested in, that comes across very clearly. So mm. um, you're absolutely right. It's important to have a purpose behind your subject. Mm. And if someone hates public speaking but really would like to be better at it, is there one thing they could do this week to go towards that path of excellent public speaking? The one thing is stand in front of a full-length mirror and talk to yourself in the mirror, which sounds insane, but talk about yourself. My name is this, like, you know, as if you're talking to an audience. And do it until you stop feeling cringeworthy, you know, until it feels a lot more natural. And then develop from that to talking about something you feel passionately about. It could be anything, your dog, your cat, living in the countryside, painting, you know, anything at all. And then gradually build up from there. Have the aim of trying to engage people. You know, your aim by the end of what you're saying is to have the majority of the people you're talking to, imaginary people at this stage, as passionate about what you're talking about as you are. So if it's your dog, you know, think about pictures you might put up. When we first got the dog, how often I walk the dog. You know, these are the things that, you know, people want to hear if you want to talk to get people on side about loving dogs. I mean, it's a random example, but you get the point. But it starts with standing in front of a mirror. <laughs> there's, there's no getting away from that because when you're public speaking, you'll have people taking pictures of you. At the moment, everything's recorded on Zoom. There's so many more image captures now that if you're not comfortable with how you look in the mirror, you're really going to struggle. So that's the one thing you can do. Start talking to yourself in the mirror. <laughs> Sounds like crazy advice. The psychiatrist said that. They'd be um, very concerned that I'm saying this. But uh, that's what I say to people <laughs> is start with that. And mm, then we can, we can build on it from there. <laughs> <laughs> excellent. <laughs> I think there will be lots of babies very surprised why <laughs> mommy or daddy is suddenly talking in, in themselves uh, to the mirror. <laughs> Just... Briefly, I really want to pick up on a different topic, which is pandemic. Now, you have been so active 
in terms of driving change during the pandemic. And I just wondered whether you could share a bit about how you looked after your own mental health and well-being during this very challenging time. Yes. So it caught us all unawares. I think a lot of us were in denial about lockdown happening. And I was amongst those people. And honestly, most of April was incredibly tough. Uh, In fact, it took my son forcing me to go for long walks with him because, you know, it was just so difficult to get our heads around it. I was worried about family members, friends were losing their jobs and, you know, all this was going on. So having people you're accountable to, and I live with my son and he knows me very well. He took me out for a very long walk uh, in the second week, you know, and had a chat with his mum about how mummy was feeling. And and that was wonderful, you know, because he just exercises and carries on with his routine and wanted me to, to be in a better place. So that got me out of that initial mental block of this is just horrific, this whole thing. And then I became very, very productive. You know, my studying was going very well with Wharton. Unfortunately, the George Floyd incident happened, but even that became an opportunity to drive change. And I received a load of work around race, race awareness and keynotes around that. Uh, Keeping busy and having that focus that this still remains my purpose. This is still my why. And even in a pandemic, I'm going to carry on driving that forward has has been what has actually helped me in terms of mental health and it's gone as far as the the medical scholarship scheme that I I run you know I mentioned my father passed away we run a scheme to help other minority ethnic medical students because my father was in Germany you know he was a medical student in Germany in the 60s and we still carried on awarded the scholarships this year you know and this year was probably the most important year to be doing that because a number of our previous winners were becoming doctors this year, having to rush their final exams and go straight on to COVID wards. But it was such a motivator to, to support them. I also got involved in the uh, inequalities work around uh, COVID and when the data was coming through on that uh, with Public Health England. So I'm an interested party in, in that data and the reports. And I advised on a clinical trial as well. So one of the early clinical trials around COVID treatment options. I was one of the advisors around governance frameworks and, you know, because we had to do it very, very quickly because of the urgency. So that, that really, really helped, you know, to motivate me, Marina. And I think for, for anyone who's listening to this, maintaining your sense of purpose and your why is so important when everything else, when we have shifting sands and the foundations are being ripped beneath us, having that focus is really, really critical. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I've also criticised at the beginning when I set up the Leaders Plus Fellowship Programme about why we were putting so much focus on giving people the time to think about vision and goals and really challenge them to think about long-term things when they had so many other things going on. But actually, it's exactly in the eye of the storm where you do need that clear clear purpose. And I'm really surprised how much... So I always ask this question about coping because I'm curious and when I do the podcast, and I think the purpose just comes up so much. Yeah, it's fascinating. Mm. Is there anything else that we haven't talked about that you really wanted to make sure the listeners knew about? I think we've touched on this, that we're not victims in all these things, you know, Verena. I mean, good and bad things happen to everybody all the time. It can be very random and incredibly unfair, and that could be anybody, whatever your background but we can actually choose how we move on. We can choose to learn from the experience, 
accept the experience. And I've had incredible loss in my life, you know, family members dying suddenly and so on. But you, it is possible to be optimistic. And that sounds crazy, but the incident has happened. You know, the, the thing has happened. And you have to take control then in the right time and, you know, for, for moving forward in a way that's going to be productive and healthy. And that's something that we can all do, even now, even with what we're going through. That's an element of control that I, I firmly believe we can all take back. We don't know how long the pandemic is going to last. We don't know if there are more lockdowns on the way. We have no idea what 2021 will look like. And the sooner that we try to embrace the uncertainty, which it sounds counterintuitive, the better. And think of ways that we can build from this, you know, rather than feeling that we're, we're caught up in this and we're all victims. That's mm. the message I really want to get across. Mm. That's very powerful. Thank you so much for, for sharing that. Um, that really resonates with me. If people want to support your important work or find out more about you, where should they go? So my website's the best place. Uh, very easy to find. It's funkeabimbola.com. And you can contact me through the website. There's an email address on the website. I'm also on LinkedIn as Dr. Funke Abimbola MBE. I'm very happy if anyone wants to connect with me, drop me a note on LinkedIn. I'd be very happy to connect. And I'm on Twitter as Champ One Diversity. So really would be delighted to, to connect with anyone who feels that they'd like to make that connection. Excellent. Thank you so much, Funke, for taking the time to speak to me today. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening today. If you are looking to join a network of like-minded, ambitious individuals who are parents across sectors and you want to hear more from wonderful mentors, then do head to leadersplus.org.uk to register interest right now. If this podcast has helped you in any way, please take a moment to share it with three of your friends, send them a WhatsApp message or signal or whatever you're using and leave a review and most importantly, hit the subscribe button. That makes a massive difference because it helps us to reach more people and also will help us as we'll enter the podcasting awards in January. So thank you in advance for supporting this work. Obviously, like with any podcast, five-star reviews really help with the visibility. Until next time, have a wonderful week. Mm-hmm.